Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 27. Like last week, you'll have to have that copy of the text in front of you. Too many verses to put on an insert, so instead I put a map on your insert that may be hard to see, but you'll get the gist of the journey that Paul is on. Remember, he is being sent from Caesarea to Rome, finally going to Rome. F.F. Bruce, the great New Testament scholar, said that Luke's narrative of the voyage and shipwreck of Paul is a small classic in its own right. That's what we have before us. As graphic a piece of descriptive writing as anything in the Bible. That's how Bruce describes this incredible chapter, chapter 27. You remember that when Paul went to Jerusalem, it seemed like he might die there. But when he was in Jerusalem, Jesus came to him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So Paul knew that the short-term mission of God for him was to testify in Rome. He also knew that the long-term mission was to go to heaven, to be with God, to finish the race that he was running. And that's what makes up our life, right? You have an ultimate reality we know is true for every believer. And then there are these short-term assignments that we may receive or things he calls us to be faithful to in the shorter term. You see this um, throughout our own lives and in the life of Paul, described here very vividly, even in his trip. Now, I want to just read a few verses to set up this whole story, an incredible story of this shipwreck on his way to Rome. To say that the trip didn't go well would be a massive understatement, but we'll be focusing on these center verses that give us meaning for why Luke puts it in the passage as he does, or puts it in his whole work of Acts. So follow as I read now to begin. Acts 27, I'll start at verse 20, and I'll read to verse 25. The context immediately, they've been basically floating at sea, trying to endure a terrible storm, For two weeks, and this passage comes at that moment, please hear God's word. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Let's bow together. And ask God for his guidance and understanding and applying his word. Let us pray. Father, there is here before us an incredible story of Paul's journey. And there's a clear reason you have placed such a lengthy, detailed account in your word. Help us to understand and appreciate the details and see the relevance of the whole episode for our lives. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're about to go through really one of the most graphic depictions of an ancient maritime disaster as has ever been penned. 
that brought my mind to some of the other maritime disasters that we know about. And I know growing up near the Great Lakes, we heard stories all the time, actually, of ships and shipwrecks. Gordon Lightfoot, a Canadian folk artist, wrote a song about a wreck in Lake Superior that happened in 1975. Many of you have probably heard his song, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. The Edmund Fitzgerald was a massive cargo ship built in the late 60s, and it set sail uh, that year in 1975, it was, um, to bring cargo from Lake Superior across ultimately to Cleveland, but it was going to stop in Detroit before then. That ship carried 26,000 tons of iron ore. Most of the ships in the Great Lakes region at that time were, were bringing iron ore to the various steel plants that dotted the different coastlines of the Great Lakes. And companies would race to get their cargoes of iron ore out before the winter came. Because when the winter comes to the Great Lake region, sometimes the lakes freeze, but they are not able to be uh, navigated. Uh, a wind comes uh, strong from the north and pushes down and it causes all sorts of havoc on those who might be caught at sea. So you have to get out before the middle of November to hope to get uh, any of your cargoes delivered. And that was the case with the Edmund Fitzgerald. Even though it was in early November, they got caught in a year where the winds came early. And the story is told in the song that Lightfoot wrote and sang. In the beginning, the song goes, the wind and the wires made a tattletale sound when the wave broke over the railing. Every man knew, as the captain did too, was the witch of November come stealing. The dawn came late and the breakfast had to wait when the gales of November came slashing. When afternoon came, it was freezing rain in the face of a hurricane, hurricane west wind. It's a great vivid picture of a true story that happened, and it gives you a bit of what the people must have felt like who were caught in this terrible situation. Now here is the Apostle Paul. He has the promise of God to get to Rome. Yet there are some waters he will have to navigate. There is a storm he will have to endure. In fact, what we learn from this story, among other things, is a greater lesson. God promised Paul that he would bear witness for him in Christ, and there's no doubt about it. But he did not promise the apostle smooth sailing along the way. Let's look at the story and see how it unfolds. And at least secondarily, it gives us a bit of a metaphor of the experience of every Christian at some level. And there's a primary meaning, which is to build our confidence in the providence of God to see to his promises in Paul. But there's also something there for every Christian to gain when they consider their own life. Look at the first verse and we'll see how the, the, the journey started out. It was pretty smooth to begin with, this trip from Caesarea that had to end up in Rome. Verse 1, when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan co cohort named Julius. So you notice Luke's use of the third person here. It was decided that we would sail. So we are sure that Luke was with Paul when Festus sent them to Rome. In a kindly centurion, that is a Roman soldier who is in the command of a hundred other soldiers, was responsible for making sure Paul got to Caesar. Verse 2, and embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from, from Thessalonica. So a ship from Adramidium just simply means where the ship originated. It was a ship that probably just went north and south along the coast of Israel and in modern-day Lebanon and so forth and up and around. Probably a smaller, mid-sized ship, maybe fit 100 people or so. And it would go up and down hugging the coastline. Most ships in antiquity would hug the coastline. 
Um, they were not great sailing vessels that would go over the open sea, especially in the Mediterranean. They were mostly meant to carry cargo and men. Um, they were crude. Uh, they had oars rather than a rudder at the back at that point in the first century. Huge oars. Some had multiple oars, just a couple. They called them rudders, but they were just basically oars that you rowed and steered with. And then one mast with a sail on it would be about all they had. So if the wind wasn't at your favor, you would have to hug and crawl along the coastline, actually rowing and moving slowly because you, you had to have the wind in order to move any, any quicker than that. And the Roman Empire at that time had an elaborate system of roads, as you probably remember from school, and they also had seaways that you could follow that would take different routes to the different ports to do commerce, and one of the big cargoes was to bring grain back to Rome, big money in bringing grain, food, back to Rome. The Roman Empire conquered various places, and grain was the main way they paid their taxes. And so there were ships all the time moving to and fro to try to get to Rome. But like the Great Lakes, you didn't want to be at sea in the winter months. And here we are pushed up into October, and they have to make this trip. Verse 3, the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. You can see on your map where they went in the first day. They went from Caesarea just north to Sidon. Sidon is where modern-day Lebanon is now. You see Syria on the map as well. So that just a day into the journey, uh, the centurion Julius lets Paul go see friends there before they, take, uh, before they embark from that place in the morning. Verse 4, so far, so good. The trip is smooth. And putting out to sea... From there we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. That's verse 4. If you look at the map, you'll see they would have rather gone across the open sea. If the wind was blowing strong um, from the west to the east, they could have just gone straight across to Crete. That would be the common way to go. But because the wind was actually coming from the north and from the, in north and from the, east, or the west, pushing them east, they were having trouble, so they had to go up and around Cyprus. That's the map, the way you see it, and they're hugging hugging the coastline. Verse 5, And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. You see where they stopped there on the map as well. So they stopped there, and the centurion, verse 6, found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. Now, Julius was probably trying to get them as quickly to Rome as possible, knowing the winter was coming. No question about that. But you also notice it's probably a bigger ship at this point. This would be one that could take on more open sea fare. And so this is what he does as he moves. Uh, we don't know how many with Paul, but we know Aristarchus and Luke is with him. And they are moved onto a ship that's heading to Alexandria, no doubt with Roman soldiers, with sailors, and with cargo of wheat. We learn that as time goes. So far it's smooth. The transition goes well. doesn't seem like the layover is too long. And here they are on their way to Rome. An arduous journey for sure, a tough one everyone knew, but it had gone smooth so far. And really, as you think of this as a metaphor for the Christian life, it's similar. There are smooth spots in our life. There are periods of time, though we know that life is perilous, there are moments that we can enjoy that are smooth sailing. And that's what we have here. It's a time to gain your strength, a time to gain your encouragement, to think on things, to be ready, because you know it won't stay that way. No sea stays completely still. You know if you're in the sea, the rough waters will come. Paul took time to visit with friends. He was certainly encouraged in his faith. The smooth waters were under him, but the smooth waters don't last long, as they don't last long in life. The rough waters come. Look at starting at verse 6 again and then to verse 7. They enter into a rougher 
way now. They, sh- they switch ship, uh, ships in verse 6. They found a ship of Alexandria. That means it originated probably from Egypt, sailing for Italy and put us on board. We learn that 276 people fit on this ship. So think of the pirate ships in the 1500s, only much cruder. They were that big with maybe one deck, sometimes two. The lower deck would have all the cargo and men would be in the top deck, usually exposed to the elements, just the way they traveled. So a ship that size with over 270 people on board. Verse 7, we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Sinaitis. Now, if a first century person who understands maritime travel says it's with difficulty, that's worse than the average person. You know how that person who's a seasoned traveler says, yeah, we had a little bit of turbulence. Well, for most of us, it's probably a lot of turbulence, probably really uncomfortable that don't, if we don't travel often. But here Luke's saying that there was difficulty. Uh, with difficulty, they get off, they, they arrive to Sinaitis, and as the wind did not allow us to go far, farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete to Salomone. You see how they go south down to Crete, and this is a slow, arduous, rough journey with difficulty they arrive. It's a slow and difficult. Now, they get to Salmone. You see them there on the map in a much rougher water than they started. Coasting along with difficulty, they came to a place called Fair Havens. It's very small. You might not be able to see it. In the middle of the island of Crete. And there they are. And now they're up against a deadline because winter is upon them. The winds have already been north and west the whole time, pushing them back so it would only get worse as the winter, the winter progressed. But they were in fair havens, and the Passover was over. So there weren't many people there. It was not the place you want to spend the next two months. That's how long they would have to wait for winter to pass. Verse 9, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, that's a reference to the Passover, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss. Not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Paul's saying, we got to stay in fair havens. We cannot afford. It's been rough waters already. You've seen how it's going to be. It's going to be way worse. Now, let me be clear. Paul is speaking as just simply, you know, an old guy with some wisdom. And he could just tell the way things are looking here. He had traveled by sea many times in his life. He'd even endured shipwrecks already. And so he's saying it would not be wise for us to go, just as one of the passengers, but one that maybe has a little more experience than the others. He's not yet at this moment speaking as a prophet of God, as an apostle of Christ. He's just saying, this would not be wise for us to leave Fair Havens. We should just stay here. That's what he, sh- that's what he says. Now, when you think of this portion of the journey, it's not smooth anymore. It's riddled with all sorts of questions. There's obstacles. They're having to stop and start. And now they have to wonder, should we keep going? It's, it's a life and death decision, perhaps. And I would say that maybe the majority of our life is lived in that kind of a space, that kind of a place where there's unknowns. You don't know what's going to happen. It's rough. People say, how are you doing? I'm okay. And what you mean by that is, you don't, I don't have time to tell you all the different complexities that are happening. And every one of you could probably say that at some moment. Because I think most of life in this fallen world dealing with all the effects of the fall, are rough waters. Now, God is with us, and you can sense that confidence in Paul about that fact. Paul knows he's going to Rome, yet he's wise enough to see this is going to be brutal if we try this. People are going to die if we try this. Um, This is going to be a great loss. We should not do this. But much time had passed, and now it was dangerous. Verse 10, he says, I don't think we should do this. 
I don't think we can underestimate how difficult a journey like this would be, uh, especially when you're totally dependent on the wind to blow you at any speed. Uh, For several years, I've taken my bike across the Katy Trail. And if you know the Katy Trails, it's an old railroad line that goes across Missouri. And many spots are in the open country. And it's, it's elevated a bit on a limestone bed, and so it goes a little slower than blacktop. And it's really great. It's a beautiful trip. And it's really great when the wind's at your back. When the wind's at your back, you could easily average 15 miles per hour, which on limestone is not easy. It's not like blacktop. You can go 20 or 22 or more. Um, but 15 miles an hour, you can go pretty quick and get place to place. But if there's no wind, it's just neutral, um, you're going to go more like 11 to 13 miles per hour, and it's a little more difficult, more energy expended. If the wind is in your face, like a few years that I've gone, because we usually go at the end of May when the winds are still there and there's a lot of storms that happen and come up quick, you could barely crawl along at 7 to 9 miles an hour, and you're just spending all sorts of energy. Um, the wind makes a big difference. It could, it could triple the time it takes if the wind's in your face. Well, here they are in a ship without the wind at their back, at least for the most part. It seemed like it was coming from the north and the west. Everything wise would say, you should stay where you're at. There are periods of life that are just like these rough waters, and I think we all know what they're like. You may even be in the midst of one. Smooth waters, rough waters, and then there are pockets of life that are sheer storm, and that's what we see in Paul's experience on the sea. We have the enduring of this storm starting at verse 11. Paul gave his two cents, but notice what it says in verse 11. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. The owner wants the money that he gets from transporting this cargo. The pilot wants to get to the next place, at least to a better place. They're not going to get all the way to Rome. They're pretty well stuck, but they can get to a better place on the island of Crete, at least, that would be better for wintering. Verse 12, because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the one they were in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, which was maybe 40 miles up the coast, still on Crete. A harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest to spend the winter there. They want to move along. They don't want to stay. And verse 13 is, kind of gives evidence as to what, to what made them decide to do this. Verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, so it's been north all the time now, it blew gently from the south. They thought, here's our chance. If we get out to sea south, it's going to blow us up to Italy. That simple. Get around Crete, and then the wind will blow us up to Italy. That's what they sensed. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. We don't even have to stop now. We can go. It's a south wind. So they take off out, and you see on the map, away from Crete to go to the open sea. Now, if a south, if the south wind had continued, you can see for yourself, they would have been blown right towards the boot and the bottom of Italy. It would have been perfect. But instead, verse 14, soon a tempestuous wind called the nor'ether, nor, northeaster struck down from the land. See how that would affect them. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven. So they would come sideways and they would try to hold their position as long as they could while the wind was coming. But it was too strong and it kept blowing the ship further south into the, into the west. And that's kind of what you see there on the map. They get lost in a big section of the sea, a huge, uh, huge miles between on a boat this size. It doesn't move very quickly. And they gave way to it and were driven along. They were pushed south, driven along running under the lee of a small island called uh, Keuda, verse 16, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. 
That's that side, that boat that was hanging off the side that they would get on to get to the shore whenever they got somewhere close. They couldn't get this big ship too close to a shore or it would run aground. So they were able, the ship was going, was probably going crazy in the water and could have sunk, so they were able to tie it close to the ship. They would need that if they could ever land anywhere. Verse 17, after hoisting it up, the youth supports to undergird the ship, meaning they got ropes to basically wrap around the ship to make it tighter to hold it together. Then, fearing that they would run aground uh, on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. They're trying to get rid of uh, any weight they had, anything that was slowing them down. Verse 18, since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. Now they're starting to throw cargo overboard. Um, they, they can't afford this. They've got to get lighter. They've got to be sitting up in the water more. This is, uh, they're violently storm-tossed now. It doesn't want to and fro. Um, this was a case of survival, trying to stay alive. And it was dark as there was lots of storm around them. Verse 19, on the third day now, the third day, imagine this. They threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. They didn't even care about the equipment that they had any longer. They threw it off. I was thinking of how this parallels something in life, right? The stuff of earth, the material stuff of earth, loses its value rapidly in the face of a life or death situation. That's what you see within there. The stuff they were clinging onto, they didn't care about anymore because they saw what was at stake. They needed the ship to sit up higher. They had to lighten the load. Verse 20, when neither the sun or stars appeared for many days, and listen to the desperation here, try to sense this, feel it even, and no small tempest laid on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. What a statement from Luke, the Christian Luke, who said this, summarizing it. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. You know, in the Gordon Lightfoot song that I referred to earlier, towards the end of the song, when the end is coming near for the crew, um, he tells those moments very vividly this way. When supper time came, the old cook came on deck, saying, Fella, fellas, it's too rough to feed you. At 7 p.m., a main hatchway gave in, and he said, Fellas, it's been good to know you. The captain wired in that he had water coming in, and the good ship and crew was in peril. And later that night, when his lights went out of sight, came the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And then Lightfoot adds this line that you can appreciate. Now, he's not a believer writing this, but appreciate what he says. Does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn into ours, when the minutes turn into ours? He's describing that feeling of loneliness in the storm that you cannot be saved from or you don't think you could be saved from. And there are moments in the storm of life where even believers can feel hopeless. It's violent and it's painful against us. It's possible for Christians to feel this way momentarily, for sure. Disconnected from God's love, Lightfoot asks, does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? There are moments when we may feel abandoned by God. So what do we do? How do we handle this? No small tempest laid upon us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. You know, the most effective combat for this actually happens in preparation. I know that doesn't help when you're in the midst of it, but if you, it's the preparation about who God is and his love for us that help us in the moment. Now, Luke's speaking for the larger group. It's not to say that uh, we know exactly what 
you know, the deep discussion was about their eternal salvation and security. I'm sure for Luke and Aristarchus and Paul, that wasn't an issue. Um, but for the larger crew, it would have been a big problem, especially for Roman pagans who didn't believe in the God of Paul. But here they are, abandoned hope, and they're wondering, where is God's love? No doubt they had to be asking. At least some of them would have been. And the key anchor for Christians is the Word of God in preparation before the moment comes. And in particular, the demonstrated love of God, not just the, the feeling we talk about, oh, God loves you. No, the demonstration of God's love. How has God demonstrated that he loves us? God has demonstrated his love toward us while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is a securing love that can help us through any storm. And when that is fixed, then we are able, when we come to these moments, I'm not saying you won't be scared and you won't be fearful. That is normal. And you'll have moments of feeling alone. But it's that love that's been finalized through Christ and his work that come to us in these moments. And this is what Christians are called to in such times. And Paul himself will call their attention to the word and promise of God. It becomes God's divine uh, illumination about himself through Paul to this crew to know that they can trust what God has for them. Verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Now he's going to speak to them as the apostle, not the old codger who knew this wasn't a good idea to leave Crete. Now it's the apostle who's coming with the word of God. You see, that's the other thing we need in these moments in the storm is assurance from God's word. And that's what Paul will give here. He says in verse 22, Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel, and notice what it says very specifically, an angel of the God to whom I belong. You follow the depth of what that means? That he's assured by the one who owns him. The situation does not own him. The Romans don't own him. Caesar doesn't own him, just like Agrippa didn't. An angel spoke to the apostle, an angel of the God to whom I belong, Paul says, and whom I worship. Here I am in the midst of a terrible storm, and I am going to worship the God who owns me. Verse 24, do not be afraid, Paul, that's what the angel said to him. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So Paul was given revelation that everybody in this instance would survive this terrible trial. So take heart, verse 25, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island, which means they were going to lose the ship. Once a ship goes, uh, goes aground, it breaks apart and sinks. In the midst of the storm, Paul relied on God's divine assurance, his word, and he called everyone to focus there. It felt like certain doom. Paul was saying on behalf of God that this would not be the end of the journey. Remember, Paul was on a couple different journeys. He's on missions to do things, and then he's running a race that's his life. In both cases, it matters not. God will see him through to the, to the end goal that God has for him, and this gives him confidence. Notice how long they've been. 20, verse 27, when the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took 
a sounding and found 20 fathoms, just basically a rope marked with, with um, a fathom a little over a foot, a fathom our arm's length, and a fathom would be marked on the rope with a weight dropped down and they could tell how deep it was. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. So they were getting closer to land. Fearing that they might run on the rocks, which would have been devastating, they let down their four anchors from the stern, verse 29, and prayed for day to come. As the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out the anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. You know what was happening. It was getting light, and the sailors who were running the ship thought, we're getting off the ship, and I don't care what happens to the rest of these passengers. So they acted like they were messing with the anchors under the pretense of messing with the anchors. And as they're messing with the anchors, they're really getting the boat that they would take to shore ready to jump into it. And Paul sees them and says, don't do this. Nobody survives if you do this. Now, he could have meant simply that you guys will not survive this far out from land in that little boat and you'll die. Or he could have meant if you guys go, uh, then the people on the boat won't have what they need. They'll die, which those people wouldn't care. It could just simply mean God was only going to grant that everybody be alive. That was what he told Paul. So if you guys go, uh, understand you'll be going against God in this instance. Whatever the case, however it came across to them, in verse 32, then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. So they let that boat go too any longer. They needed all the, the lightness of the boat they could have. No more boat to go ashore. They knew they'd be swimming to get to any shore that they would come to. You know, this episode in the storm, they're so helpless. Apart from the assurance of God, there's zero they can do. But here's the thing. The illusion is this. In the smooth waters, we have some control. And in the rough waters, or in the stormy waters, we don't have control. The fact is, we never have control. The sovereign God who owns you is the one who orders all these things. We're never sovereign over any of it. Now, the beauty, if you could say there's any beauty in the rough waters or in the storm, is that that's when we are most realistic about who's in, in control. And we're brought low when we have to come to God. We have to worship him. We have to recognize he has control of all of this. I did never have control of any of the details like I thought I did. When we're in the storm, we have the greatest view of reality. And that's where we find God and his promises most vividly and carefully. The last section of the verses show a battered but safe arrival. This trip changed all of them for their life. I think the reason why, humanly speaking, Luke can rattle off the details is he was so jarred, so shaken, so impacted by everything he saw. In fact, what God did in Paul's life, even through this episode, was bring him even more confidence that he, was, he would be delivered to Rome, the most powerful uh, presence on earth at that time, and he would be able to be courageous because he'd seen that God was with him and had seen him through this. Verse 33 As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food. They probably had very limited rations. He threw everything else over. Still had cargo left, though. And there they ate. Verse 34, Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. More assurance from the apostle. Verse 35, and when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. In the midst of the storm, as he's assured of God's presence, they pause to give worship unto God. 
Verse 36, and, then, and they all were encouraged and ate some food for themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship, and when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea now as well. The ship would be lost, they knew it, so they lightened it as much as they possibly could with the hopes that when they had the right moment, they could break free from their anchors and, and make towards the land as far as they could until the ship ran aground. Verse 39, now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. Now they're in desperation mode. They had run aground, and it would not take long for the crashing tide to destroy the ship, and they would all be in the sea. So the soldiers, verse 42, their plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any swim and escape. If it ever be found that they lost a prisoner, they themselves could be killed. So they thought, we're going to kill them and we're going to go for ourselves. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make it for the land. Get to the land. And so they do. What about the rest of them? Verse 44. The rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. They were supposed to paddle their way, basically. So it was that all were brought safely to the land. Finally safe. Battered, but safe. Now the trip wasn't over, but now they were at Malta, and they could regroup for the winter. Now, in conclusion, why do you think Luke gives such a detailed account in the book of Acts? Thomas Walker, who is an expert in all things first century, said there is no such detailed record of the working of an ancient ship in the whole of classical literature. Luke could have simply summarized this trip in just a few verses and got right to the ministry Paul had when he was in Malta and in Italy. I think there are a few reasons at least that we should consider and we've already thought about a little bit. First of all, it gives credibility to the whole account that Luke is an eyewitness to everything that happened. Only an eyewitness could recount such details. It gives further credibility to the whole gospel of Luke in the letter of Acts, or the novel of Acts, if you will. Just to know this careful eyewitness is giving us the message of the gospel of Christ. Secondly, I think it shows very clearly the providential supernatural hand of God to make sure that Paul would arrive in Rome. Whatever God calls us to, he will deliver us there safely. But he does not promise it will be smooth en route. That's the thing. John Stott said, Luke intends for us to marvel with him over the safe conduct of Paul to Rome in these circumstances. He actually gets there because it was God's mission for him. Third, I would mention to you that it shows that God keeps his promises in general to deliver his children to their appointed destination. Kent Hughes, a pastor I really appreciate, said the record of Paul's shipwreck in Acts 27 is intriguing history, but it is also a metaphor of what all Christians experience in their voyage through life. This story does provide a bit of a metaphor for us as we think about it. We spend some time in the smooth waters where we can regroup, where we can be built up, where we can be ready. But much of what we'll deal with will be rough waters. And you can be sure you're going to go through some violent, tempestuous winds in your life. In all these cases, God promises to deliver us. It might be in an ultimate sense. It could be in an immediate sense with various things he calls us to that are difficult. 
but his presence is with us and he always loves us, even though people might wonder, where does the love of God go when the waves turns the minutes to hours? We can know it's demonstrated to us in the person of Christ in those moments, and he'll never leave us or forsake us. Where are you in the voyage of life? The smooth waters, the rough waters, the midst of the storm? It's rarely through an audible voice that God would speak to anyone, especially now that we have the scriptures. More usually, we receive comfort through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, bringing to our minds the promises of his word. The God to whom you belong will keep you. It's a providential irony that Paul wrote to the Roman Christians a couple years before he actually got to meet them. It was one of his other missionary journeys. He had heard of the testimony of those Christians in Rome. And so he wrote the epistle of the Romans, or to the Romans at that time. Now he was going to be able to actually see them face to face. But what he said to the Romans was actualized even in his own life again. And I want to close with some of the words he spoke to the Romans. Now with your view of this shipwreck, think of some common verses you have heard and how they would really relate to what Paul had undergone. In Romans 8, Paul writes, What shall I say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. He roots all of our blessings, all of our confidence in the work of Christ finished for us. Paul says to the Romans and to us, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now think of the shipwreck. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, Paul says to his Roman Christian friends, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And again, thinking of the shipwreck, for I am sure that there is neither death, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers or height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Does anyone know where the love of God goes when the wind turns the minutes to hours? love of God goes nowhere. It's placed upon us in Christ, and it's there forever. And God will see to it to the end, whether you're in the smooth waters of your life, the rougher waters, or even in the eye of the storm. Let's bow together and pray. Lord, as we sail through life's storms, may your presence and rule in our lives preserve our trust in you. When we are tempted to despair and abandon hope, bring us to fresh attention of these promises of your word, of Christ's work for us, proving his love for us, that it's been finished, it's never, never over, even if we feel it otherwise. May we trust in you during all times, whether they be smooth waters or rough waters or violent storms. And may others see you in us and come to know you too, the God who owns us and the God who we worship. Pray this in Christ's name, amen. Let's turn in our hymnals to 631.
very suitably, we will sing the first four verses of From Every Stormy Wind That Blows. We'll stand as the elders and the ushers come to prepare the table.